Why were that's great singing of some great songs there. And if you're worshipping like this on Good Friday, I can't wait for Easter Sunday. My word, that's going to be something else. But many of the words that we've been singing tonight have been a mixture, haven't they, about uh, the darling of heaven crucified, which is Good Friday. But we've also been singing in the words that we've been singing tonight about um, the one who is exalted and lifted on high and one who reigns victoriously. And it's very difficult, isn't it, for us to separate Good Friday and Easter Sunday because the two go very much hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other. Well, when we were singing that first song, actually some verses came to my mind from Ephesians chapter 3. Um, when we were singing about how wide and how deep and long the love of God is. And this is what Paul writes. And he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. So he asks almost for something impossible there, doesn't he? He asks for us to know the love that surpasses knowledge. Work that one out. But um, it's quite incredible when we think of God's love for us. It's beyond human words. Well, over the last four weeks, um, we've been reflecting on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and ministry leading up to the crucifixion. In our first uh, study four weeks ago, we looked at the, the Passover meal or the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. On that evening, he broke bread and he took wine and he passed that on to his disciples, um, commemorating or what was to be commemorating his body, which was to be soon broken, and his blood that was to be shed, and he has to be remembered in this way. And then Jesus walked to Gethsemane, that olive grove just outside Jerusalem, and it was there that he prayed that the cup of the Lord might pass from him. Yet not my will, he prayed, but thy will, your father's, father's will be done. It was also at Gethsemane that the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, led by Judas, uh, the disciple who betrayed the Lord. And um, going to the town centre service this morning, um, Sean and Dan were uh, with, with um, Amelie and Elijah, and uh, they were talking to them in the car and saying that, um, telling them all about the Easter story, and then asked uh, if they knew who it was who betrayed Jesus. And Amelie answered, yes, of course I do. It was Judith. <laughs> so, <laughs> in Gethsemane, Peter offered some initial resistance as well, but he was quickly rebuked by Jesus. He took sword in hand and he jumped into the detachment of Roman soldiers and cut off Malchus's right ear. The Peter who performed such a courageous act very soon afterwards, denied Jesus on three occasions. Following that, Jesus was taken to Annas' house and then Caiaphas' house. Annas was the former high priest who had been stood down by the Romans and they put his son-in-law Caiaphas in the place of high priest. And the Jews most certainly didn't enjoy that at all because they didn't want the Romans meddling with their religious affairs. But both Annas and Caiaphas were unscrupulous and devious men. And it was in Caiaphas' home that the members of the Sanhedrin met together 
to decide what to do with Jesus. And as we discovered on Sunday, the religious leaders conspired to break many of their own precious laws uh, in order to send Jesus to the cross. They sought out false witnesses and they falsely testified about Jesus and they accused him of the religious charge of blasphemy. But since the Romans had invaded Palestine, the Jews were no longer uh, having the authority to enforce the death penalty. And the religious leaders therefore needed to take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. And they knew full well that if they went to Pilate with uh, the charge of blasphemy, he wouldn't have listened to them because that meant absolutely nothing to them, uh, to him. He had nothing at all to do with their, their petty religious squabbles. But the religious charge that they accused Jesus of was blasphemy. But when they went to Pilate, they changed it to a political charge. And they told Pilate that Jesus was opposing Caesar by telling people not to pay their taxes. And also by claiming that he was a king, king of the Jews. So the religious charge became a political charge. Pilate might not have been interested in blasphemy, but he was most certainly interested in tax evasion and in treason. And as we saw in our last study, Pilate was a weak and devious man. And if you put the details of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John together, you find on seven separate occasions that Pilate um, was claiming that Jesus was without guilt and did nothing to deserve death. But Pilate was also a coward, for he was only prepared to release Jesus if it was at no cost to himself. And Pilate attempted to wriggle out of the sentence of Jesus, uh, or sentencing Jesus to crucifixion in a number of ways uh, before having Jesus flogged. And we said on Sunday this was a severe torture in itself. The instrument that was used was a flagellum, had a wooden handle with, with nine leather straps and attached to the straps were pieces of bone and metal. And they were, um, when a person was uh, flogged by this, it tore into the skin and into the flesh. And very often a person would die before they got to the crucifixion. Or sometimes people went stark raving mad. They went insane through the terribleness of this torture. And the Jews would not whip a person more than 39 times, but the Romans knew no such restrictions as that. And as I say, people died through this torture alone. And that, this evening, is where we pick up the story. I'm going to read from Matthew's account um, tonight of the crucifixion. And it's starting from Matthew chapter 27, verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 27. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. 
The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. At noon, darkness fell over the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge of sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest says, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The Roman guards were men of war. They were brutal, callous, merciless, cruel, ruthless. And when Jesus had been handed over to them in Pilate's residence, they took this as an opportunity for some sport. That's all it was to them. There was no pity, no compassion. They just grasped the opportunity to make the last hours of a man who had already experienced flogging who was bleeding profusely, who was barely conscious, a man who was about to be crucified, they were going to make this time even more agonizing for him. They twisted thorns, they put together a crown for him, scarlet robe on him. They bent down in mock worship. The king of the Jews, they spat at him, struck him on the head, prophesy Messiah, who hit you? And then they took him away to crucify him. By this time, Jesus was unable to carry his own cross. So the Roman guards compelled a visitor to the city, a man named Simon, to carry the cross of Jesus. Simon was from Cyrene in North Africa. And in Mark's Gospel, we're told a very interesting detail about Simon. We're told that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, it's so easy to read that in Mark's Gospel and just read on quickly not realizing what is so fascinating about this. It's a fascinating detail because Mark wrote his gospel 
many years later. And it appears now that Simon's two sons, Alexander and Rufus, were known to the early Christian community. And my guess is that they were also followers of Jesus themselves. I don't think there would be any other reason for him to mention them like that. Now, I can't prove this, but I think that it's a fair assumption that Simon of Cyrene, this unsuspecting visitor to Jerusalem at Passover, got far more than he bargained for when he came to the city that weekend. Maybe through the trauma of carrying this wooden cross with a man soon to be nailed upon it, when he listened to his last words, when he witnessed the three hours of darkness, when he heard about the temple curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, and when it was then reported that this man Jesus had actually risen from the dead, I believe that all of those things would have caused Simon to become a follower of Jesus himself. And that is why I think there's that little detail which is so important. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, I'm pretty sure that they were Christians. And how on earth were they Christians? What was the influence in their lives? As I say, I'm only assuming this, but I don't think I'm that far off. Who knows? They then took Jesus to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and probably referring to a small hill outside the city, which looked like a skull. Golgotha is the Aramaic name, but we also know it uh, by its Latin name, which is Calvary. And when he got to Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with gall. And tradition says that some of the women in Jerusalem, um, really as an act of kindness, mixed this wine with this pain-killing narcotic, just out of a sense of mercy for those who were being crucified. But after tasting it, Jesus chose not to drink any anymore because he wanted to be fully conscious uh, until his death. And whilst our minds fill in many of the gruesome details of what crucifixion was like, all we are told in all four Gospels is that they crucified him. No elaboration, no embellishment, no embroidery. They crucified him. God incarnate, our Emmanuel, crucified. And during his time on the cross, there are seven recorded sayings. No gospel has all of the sayings, but as we put the gospels, the four gospels together, we have seven sayings. And it's Luke who records Jesus praying for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And I find these words absolutely extraordinary. Jesus could have prayed, Father, judge them. He could have prayed, Father, condemn them. Father, send your legions of angels to destroy them. But none of that. He prayed, Father, forgive them, which I find quite amazing. And when we read of all that Christ went through, the denial, the betrayal, the injustice, the flogging, the mockery, the ridicule, the crown of thorns, the cowardice of Pilate, the duplicity of the religious leaders, the treachery of Judas, 
the barbaric cruelty of the soldiers. And as Jesus hung on that cross in excruciating pain, desperately struggling to take his next breath, he did not pray for their destruction, he did not pray for, their, for vengeance, but rather he prayed for forgiveness. He prayed to his Father to forgive them. Jesus practiced most certainly what he preached. How many times shall I forgive, asked Peter. Shall I forgive up to seven times? Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And now the greatest example of forgiving love this world has ever seen prayed for his enemies on that cross. On November the 14th, 1940, Coventry Cathedral was bombed and its ruins stand next to the sanctuary which was built in 1962. And perhaps the most interesting uh, thing about those ruins is the inscription which is uh, carved on the wall um, behind the charred cross. And the words simply say, Father, forgive. A true Christian response. And sometimes in our lives, people hurt us with the things that they say. They hurt us with spiteful actions. But none of us has ever experienced what Jesus experienced. And none of us, I doubt, ever will experience what Jesus experienced. But the one that we call Lord and Master is the one who calls us to follow him. There was a written charge placed above Jesus that stated, King of the Jews. And John's Gospel tells us that this was written in Latin and Aramaic and in Greek. Two thieves were either side of Jesus and Luke provides the detail that one of them cursed Jesus and the other was a man of a very different kind. His neighbour certainly wasn't like the other man and he said, don't you fear God? We are getting what we deserve but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I know that many words have been written on the word paradise. Many scholars and theologians and Bible commentators have written about paradise. How does this fit into life after death? Is it heaven that Jesus was speaking about? Is it some other place? And so often, in our concern for precise definitions, we actually miss the elephant in the room. Because listen again to what Jesus said. And listen carefully what he said today. Today, you will be with me. And if we were to put the emphasis on the words today and with me, well, maybe we wouldn't ask so many questions about paradise. You see, if anything, this exchange tells us that what we know is not nearly as important as our faith and trust in Christ. And it's far more important for us to have a living faith and trust in Christ than it is to have a PhD in theology. The Bible tells us that we are justified by faith, not by our belief in justification by faith. And I want you to think that one through. And if you're still confused, come and have a chat with me afterwards, all right? But we are justified by faith, not our belief in justification by faith. Now, this guy knew nothing at all about Christian theology. 
I'm sure that he knew very little about Jesus, knew little about the way of salvation, didn't know about baptism, didn't know about the church. He had little knowledge and understanding, but that day he received far more than he could ever have imagined or expected. And I believe that heaven is going to be full of his surprises because God is far bigger, far greater, far better, far more loving, more wonderful than sometimes we Christians could ever imagine. You know, our very best thoughts of him and our greatest imaginations about God all fall very short of who God is. Human language, even, the most, even of the most gifted songwriter and poet, whose words might move us very deeply, is utterly inadequate in describing what God is like. I suppose it's the equivalent of a preschooler attempting to explain quantum mechanics or the theory of relativity. You know, a four-year-old simply doesn't have the language to explain such things. And we will always, always, always fall short in attempting to use, use human language to describe the majesty and the magnificence of God. But human language is all that we have. When you compare the four gospel accounts, you will hear the continuous abuse that Jesus suffered, not only from the thief on the cross, but from those who passed by also. Matthew 27, 39, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourselves. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. It wasn't only those people passing by, but also the chief priests and teachers of the law. They mocked him too. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. But it was also the soldiers had a go in their mockery. If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. and we are told that from noon until 3 p.m. darkness covered the land. It was almost as if creation itself was screaming out in anguish over the events of that day. And at 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With some of the bystanders thinking that he was calling out for Elijah. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed for the cup of the Lord to pass from him, yet not his will, but his Father's will be done? Well, that prayer is not merely, I believe, concerned about the physical pain that Jesus was going to experience through the flogging and through the crucifixion. It wasn't just the mental pain of, of rejection and being despised by his own people, but it was also the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world, which include your sins and my sin this evening. And in doing so, he experienced that temporary separation from his father when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John's gospel informs us that Jesus then cried out, it is finished. He didn't cry out, I am finished. But it is finished. The work that the Father had given him is now completed. The great plan of his fathers for the salvation of the world is now achieved. The Aramaic word that uh, Jesus would have used is the word tetelestai, 
which is an accounting term, which means paid in full. That's it. No more to do. The job is done. And at that moment, the gospel writers tell us that the curtain in the temple between the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. And that has huge significance because the temple in Jerusalem was essentially divided into three areas. You had the outer courts where ordinary people went. Then you had the holy place where the, high, where the, rather the priests performing their ministry went. But then beyond the holy place was the most holy place where only the high priest once a year on the day of atonement went to make a sacrifice for the sin of the nation. And in between this most holy place and the holy place was a curtain. And when Christ died, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that God had done the tearing. It wasn't needed any longer. You see, in Old Testament times, the high priest went once a year to sacrifice an animal for the sins of the people. But now Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the sacrifice. And in the book of Hebrews, we are told that there is no need any longer for animal sacrifices. That's been done away with. The barrier that separated God and humanity has been removed. Priests are no longer required. Blood sacrifices are no longer required because Christ is our sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice has given his life for you and for me. What's our response? What's our response? I think there could be no better response than in the song that we are now going to sing. In that great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the fourth verse and the final verse says these words. Will the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And tonight, as we ponder his great love, not just for the world, but for you personally, there is a, a response. We could never pay him back for that. There is nothing that we could ever do in order to win God's approval somehow. But there is a response. There's an appropriate response, a relevant response, and that is to say, Lord, you have done this for me. I am wanting with all that I am and all that I have, every breath that I have within me to serve you, with all the love in my heart to serve you in this world, to be your light in this world of darkness. And I invite you just now to stand with me. Guys, if you would come back and lead us in this song, please. <laughs>